Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Schulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 22, the season finale, Lucifer Rising. Let's get this show on the road. Can you believe that we are now finishing season four? I feel so like shaken by where we are. Even weirder is I think it's season three was a short season, right? It was only like 18 or 16 episodes. 16 episodes. I feel like season three went by so fast that season four felt ridiculously longer. There was so much more meat. That season four also had a lot more direction than season three and I think that that makes a big difference especially with the kind of like watch that we are doing felt like week to week there was a lot more to consume material wise and maybe again I know season three was cut short because of the writer strike and maybe that's another side effect you don't really see until you're doing this kind of like consumption of the franchise of just how much there is season four the tail and that last like third or quarter are just heavy episodes it was a much heavier season season four is really when supernatural hit its stride like it knew what it was doing you know the writer's room were i guess used to each other used to the characters the actors were starting to really bring things in to the characters and that meta work was starting to happen meaning like the writers were starting to write for the actors playing the characters And you can start to see that in season four in a way that, yeah, you could sort of see before, but definitely not as much. I think anyway. This season feels like the supernatural I was aware of in like the media universe. Like if you were to ask me to describe an episode of Supernatural, having not really followed it more than as much as I already did anyways. This season, I feel like would have been an episode I would have described like just the the dynamic of the brothers that kind of battling each other and having their differences, but ultimately finding each other and like Cass's introduction and becoming this character like this really feels like what I think of when I think of Supernatural, even as an outsider before I became an insider that I am now. I mean, I'm, I'm just so excited for us to get to season five because season five is even more of that. But before we do that, would you please like to recap this episode for us? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. Sam's escaped and is back with Ruby and he has demon blood and he's all gung-ho to go after Lilith and her personal chef who steals babies because that's what Lilith eats apparently, I guess, is babies. Does she cook them first? I don't want the answer to that, but I had to put it out there. And does she eat the whole baby or just the baby's soul? Again, question I don't want to answer, but I have to put it in your mind because I'm terrible. And then we have Dean confronted by Bobby that maybe this is the wrong move and they should go after Sam and like accept him. And Dean's like, I can't. But then finally he does only after being trapped in a really pretty motel room or hotel room. It looks like I was was a hotel room the whole time, but apparently I don't know what it was. Maybe it was heaven. Anyways, Dean is trapped and surprised. The angels are all like, yeah, we want the world to burn. We're going to reboot again because we've done this countless times and you're going to be safe because you're going to kill Lucifer and your brother is basically going to free Lucifer and be the ultimate evil. And Dean's all like, I'm getting out of here. Cass is like, no, you're not. And then Cass is like, "Mm, yeah, you are. And he gets there, doesn't stop Dean in time. And then it turns out that 
uh, oh my god. Uh, then it turns out Ruby was evil the whole time. I was right, angrily. And then they kill Lilith, which we're supposed to do the whole time because it raises Lucifer. And the world ends? Question mark? Flash of light? Fade to white? Credits? Time. I feel like we have to say that we also watched this episode with our patrons. And so there was definitely like that last moment where I could see that nobody was watching the show. People were watching you react to what was happening. I feel like I became the center of attention for a while. And like, they know I don't know. And they know it's going to be fun to watch me like break. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. Our live events are great. And it might just because it's watching like Drew the puppy dog watch things happen for the first time and be shocked and mortified. (laughs) Let's go into the long game and discuss some of the things that came up and which ones I predicted or didn't. So personally, I found this podcast episode really tough to prepare because there's just so much in the TV episode. And obviously, like I wanted to talk about it all, but I also really wanted to stay within our format and our theme and our like informal time limit. So trying to be really strategic and concise was a challenge, but a really good challenge. And I hope that our listeners like it. So Lucifer tells Azazel that he needs a special child, and that happens in 1972. This is one year before the events that we see happening in 403 in the beginning. So basically, Azazel was already looking for a special child even before he was in he was in Lawrence in seventy three and before John and Mary even have plans to get married. Whether this is something we're going to learn more about later or this is he become writing fodder for um some spinoff show that may or may not be coming out, I'm intrigued to know what that means. Also, like, I don't know if you noticed, but Azazel is basically another character who's searching for an absent father. And I feel like we're really touching on something really important for Kripke because, like, apparently he's still writing about this exact theme, like, to this day. So, like, I get it. I sympathize, Eric Kripke. I get it. This isn't the last time that Dean is reminded of his worth by somebody that he loves and then is going to use their exact words in a later scene. So here I'm thinking about Bobby telling Dean that he's a better man than John ever was and then Dean telling Sam I'm not dad on the phone. Yeah, that phone call. We'll get to that. I I have a good chunk of my uh, Dean section devoted to that. But oh, my God, that... Well, so this episode also has some really wildly loud transitions. One of them is Lucifer telling Azazel that he needs a very special child. Boom, cut to Sam. (laughs) Yup. There was no misinterpreting that. No, exactly. Another one is Dean knocking down the angel and then turning around to see Cass. You know, the angel who is literally about to fall for him in all wordplay intended. Um, It's almost... Like, the moment that he laid a hand on him, he was lost, you know? If Cass's actions do not speak incredible volume this episode about Dean, you're not watching the same show as me. We also see El Sol Beer in the green room, sort of showing that that particular room is called the green room, and I've also seen it referred to as the beautiful room. That room is basically located outside of, like, our space and time, basically. 
you could have told me it's just it's a hotel room in a generic building that just happens to have no windows and doors because the angels can magic them away for convenience sake. And I'd be just as cool. I'm okay with the entire thing, but the idea of having this kind of safe space outside of story for the sake of safety, I think just works and I like it. So Cass tells Dean, I'll go with you. I think this is the first time that we hear that. And the reason why I mention it is because it becomes a thread through the rest of the series. It's it's a good line. It's a powerful line. It's, it's again, a very, very verbal indication of Cass's feelings for Dean. Well, I think in this particular moment, it's meant more as a defiance, right? Because he's like, take me to Sam. Fine, I'll go with you. Like, he says it as like, fine, I'll go with you. Like, it's not said like, I'll go with you. It, the, the, I, I know that I said the same thing, but the tone was different. <laughs> I think that's it, though. It's it, As much as we often talk about the romantic feelings of Cass and Dean, there is still the like blooming of this, there is still the I feel a responsibility for you because I've put you into this that I feel is what Cass is responding to there. It's the like, if I'm going to let you go recklessly into the night and disobey God's orders, you ain't doing it without me. Fair enough. Zachariah mentions paradise on Earth, and we'll be hearing more about this again in later seasons. I want to go through some of the art in the green room. Yes, we'll do that. (laughs) I think I recognized a painting. Well, speaking of all that, Zachariah tells Dean that he's the one who's going to stop Lucifer. And they both look at the painting that's behind them that's entitled St. Michael Killing the Dragon, which basically shows uh, Archangel Michael with his sword and his lance killing Lucifer. So let's just keep all of that in mind for next season and for later seasons. Without divulging anything, and again, knowing my history with the show and how I've often misremembered things, I do know the sword of Michael is somewhat important. Yes, absolutely. The lance, I'm not too sure about. That's a... I'll be intrigued to know if that comes back more, but... uh, There's one episode, I think in season 12, about it. Um, and it's, um, it's an unforgettable episode. Uh, so we'll go into details in story time, but this really had to be talked about in the long game because Dean and Cass have like this super intense conversation about like, quote unquote, what's real. And then Cass seeing the doubt and the guilt and anger inside Dean. Again, that just had to be mentioned in the long game. Around the same time, Dean says to Cass, you take your piece and shove it up your lily white ass because I'll take the pain and the guilt. I'll even take Sam as is. It's a lot better than being some Stepford bitch in paradise. Which, amongst other things, begs the very important question of how does Dean know what Cass's ass looks like? (laughs) Not what I thought you were going to say here. Oh. In all seriousness, I think when the thing that really comes out the most for me in this quote is actually his last sentence, which is, it's a lot better than being some Stepford bitch in paradise. It's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And I kind of get that kind of vibe from it, where it's like the I'd rather live my life my way, even if it means bad things, than be a slave 
in a air quote peaceful world. So this saying is actually from John Milton's book, Paradise Lost. Yeah, I think it um, as much as this is Dean's take on it with a little more flair, dramatics and referencing the Stepford Wives, I, I kind of see the same idea here. And I think that's kind of what they were getting at. So I kind of like that kind of his own twist on it. And finally, Ruby tells Sam it had to be you. And the next season is basically all about exploring that one sentence and a few others that were said in the beautiful room. Dean is kind of being painted as the like holy one, whereas Sam is the demonic one. Dean had to be the one to start the 66 seals and Sam had to be the one to end it. It just it seems like there's too much symmetry going on. There's going to be more of like a artificially building a rivalry between the two of them that their brotherly bonds will never allow to happen. But I'll be very intrigued to see how deep that really goes between like the two of them. Like, is it because Sam was the one who started it that they chose Dean to be the hero or is that just irrelevant? Like, I'm so intrigued. I mean, honestly, I think these are really good questions and this is basically what season five explores. So it's on our doorstep. <laughs> Speaking of things on our doorstep, is that story time? It is story time. So this episode is basically a direct response to the first episode of season four, Lazarus Rising. So again, like to kind of talk about your the literary symmetry that you were mentioning, like this is one example in this season. So to highlight that, we've actually decided to bring our theme back from that episode. So today our theme is Revelation. Now, I know that we had phrased it differently in uh, 401. We phrased it as bringing things to light. But, but like since we've been using one word themes for most of the season, we decided to like morph it into Revelation, which is sort of interesting because we literally started with the etymology and then found the word. <laughs> because revelation comes from a Latin word that means to lay bare, you know, to reveal. Uh, so basically what is being brought to light through the character's journey in this episode. It raises some questions that I think even I know are a bit out there of like, is there any direct symmetry between Cass raising Dean and Sam raising Lucifer? Like, how far do these similarities go? Even I think that's a bit ridiculous, but... I don't think it's ridiculous at all, at all. I think that there is definitely a conversation to be had about that. The thing is, I am not equipped to have it because I don't have enough knowledge of of Christianity, frankly, to be able to, to talk about it properly. But there is a conversation to be had. I would need more information on Dean going forward than we have currently to really have that conversation properly. So if if one of our lovely listeners can remind us in several years to come back to this conversation... Uh, I'll, I'll try to put a note somewhere with the other thousands of things I say to come back to and never remember to do so. Or bring your own thoughts to the conversation and send us a voicemail. Ooh, there you go. Okay. Um, is it safe to say this week might be talking about Sam, Dean, and Cass? I think it's very safe to say, to, to say that. <laughs> I love when Cass gets more story time. I know. Well, I mean, as of now, he will be appearing a lot more, so it'll be a lot more, you know, routine to be talking about him in story time. So that's pretty exciting. Would we like to start with Sam, perhaps? I think we should. And I would be so happy to have you start. OK, so last week we talked about how Sam has been suffering in silence basically this entire season and like how it culminated in an addiction to demon blood. 
And this week we're seeing a continuity from that, specifically like the consequence of Dean's ultimatum in the last episode. Sam is going through a lot. And I think that for me, it starts in the very first scene where he's telling Ruby that Dean is better off without him. What I find interesting about that is that this is what I would imagine John saying, not Sam. So I feel like we're sort of hearing John's words through Sam, which has happened a lot this season. And I think it shows just how much suffering he was going through. And I don't know, I feel bad that I didn't notice <laughs> because those are words of like isolation. You know, like the, the, the reason why we're starting with Sam this week is because his storyline, this episode is so isolated from everybody else. Yeah, I mean, really, it like it, this feels like to go back to what might be my favorite episode to go back to Scarecrow. This is very much two distinct stories that collide at the very end for a climax and both have their own, you know, consequences and challenges. Do you remember that in Scarecrow, Sam was with a demon and Dean was with a potential romantic interest? Yep, I do. <laughs> I just remembered. But anyway. Hmm, hmm. Also a demon who was potentially a romantic interest, but that's another story. So, of course, like that isolation sort of continues uh, when Ruby encourages him to kill and drink the nurse. Like, I don't really know how else to say it. So we're going to use like words to describe it. Like, it's just it's absolutely ridiculous when you think about it. But it is what it is, right? Like. The plan is to kill her, bleed her and drink her blood, which is. Yeah, there is some amount of um, like even writing notes today on that. I was like, you know, drinking the nurse and like I even even like writing it. I'm like, that sounds so dumb to write. Like, I know what it means and it's gruesome, but like I'm just like, I mean, to put a terrible image in everyone's head, just picturing a Capri Sun. <laughs> Sorry, carry on with a serious conversation now. I'll remind everybody that the nurse is possessed by Lilith's personal chef. And Sam's not on board. He doesn't want that kind of Capri Sun for himself. For the first time this season, he's like basically very clearly having doubts like about his worldview, that the ends justify the means. And it's it's like this last action, drinking the nurse, is kind of like making him realize that Maybe some things are bad, like no matter what good they can bring to the world. And that is such a 180 from the Sam that we've seen this season. And it's like a return to the Sam that we knew in seasons one through three. We really get a point here where we're finally seeing our old Sammy, our proper tallest bean, reemerge from this trauma that's what it was really like I mean because Sam catches a lot of, of flack for what happens in this season and with reason because he does make some really terrible choices and I, and I don't want to excuse that but like a lot of those choices are made because of trauma and and I just I don't know again like I, I genuinely feel bad that I didn't notice how much he was suffering in the past few seasons I'm proud that we were able to do that and thank you for admitting it I think also the revelation you had is the same one that Sam finally has this week. He is seeing what he's doing. He's finally able to disassociate the actions he's taking or reverse that. He is no longer disassociating them. Basically, this demon chef is able to also a weird thing to say, <laughs> demon chef. This demon chef, who is a nurse that Sam may have to drink eventually or will drink eventually, sentences we say on the show. 
but she finally like pinpoints in Sam that he's still a human. He still wants to save the world. He's still a good person. Let me do something horrible to him that makes him face his humanity because ultimately I would like to live and I could do that by doing this. I feel like the biggest issue here, and it's kind of what Ruby plays on a bit now looking back with the hindsight of her obviously, you know, puppeting all this. It's a sunk cost fallacy. For those who don't know, that is literally the, you know, why not give a little more? You've already given so much to avoid going into like anything too dark. I often equate it to like video games where it's like I've already put in 40 hours. What's another hour tonight before bed? And then you finally wake up at like, you know, going to bed at like three in the morning like I've done before. Like you've already put in so many hours. What's just one or two more, you know? You know, what, what would Sam like? Imagine Sam sitting there being like, I've given up so much and in his own eyes, so much of his own humanity to basically embrace this demon side of him. And like you see it in him. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He's confronted it enough times during last week's hallucinations that as much as he can argue, I'm doing it for the greater good. He still knows he's hurting people and doing bad things. And even when Ruby brings it up, like, what did you think was happening to all those people you were killing? And she even equates it to the knife before demon magic was involved, that it was just murder. And she's not wrong either. I sort of see it as the frog in boiling water where like the, you know, you put a frog in a vat of water and then, well, not nobody does that, please. But like, if a frog is in a vat of water and then it becomes hotter and hotter and hotter, like you're not going to realize how hot it's getting because you're in the water the entire time. You know, at first it was the knife. Then it was a little bit of blood from Ruby. Then it was blood from demons. And now they have to drink a whole entire nurse, right? Like it, it just kind of like went from things that Sam could excuse to something that Sam cannot excuse. Yeah. But you also get to a point where the realization is, what if, like, let's hypothetical scenario, Sam actually does turn to Ruby and go, no, I am drawing the line here. I cannot do this. This entire experiment is over. I am done with demon blood. I'm going back to my brother. We'll fight Lilith another way. He still has to sit there and go, but there's all the demon blood I already consumed. There's all the terrible things I've said to my brother. There's all the, t- all the people I've killed to get here. Their sacrifice, my sacrifice would be for nothing. Well, he's but that's the fallacy, right? <laughs> he believes he's already paid so much that watches a little more blood. There's something else about Ruby that I sort of noticed. Like, did you notice that when Sam is having doubts, instead of engaging with his argument, she's like basically like making fun of him and effeminating him? That feels very John. So that's the thing, right? Like you see how Sam reacts to these comments and he gets extremely defensive. And I agree with you. I think that this is, you know, done on purpose to make Sam be like, no, I, I, I can do this, you know, like to, to kind of like shock him into doing what something he doesn't want to do, but he doesn't want to be made fun of if he doesn't do. Oh, yeah, that is like bullying peer pressure 101 in school. The number of things I've done because someone said, oh, you're too chicken to do that thing. Oh, well, now I have to do it or else I look like a chicken. The crux of the revelation for Sam in this episode is sort of like realizing that the reason why Lucifer is rising is, in fact, him. 
Like basically Ruby's entire monologue at the end where she says, you know, it wasn't the demon blood. It was you and your choices like that. In that moment, Sam realizes that he's not only the architect of like his own demise, but also the demise of humanity. That idea that given the choice, humans will make quote unquote the wrong choice is already introduced in season three in Sin City. Oh shit, yeah. In Sin City, the demons gave the humans a bunch of choices and the humans made quote unquote the bad choices. But that was explained to Dean, not to Sam. Oh shit, true. <gasps> oh. It didn't even occur to me until just this moment how Disney that is of them to do the whole like, oh, the magic was in you the whole time. The demon blood was just, you know, all in your imagination. Like, it feels so stupid, but like it works so well. At the same time, I feel like that touches upon something that's supernatural. Remember when I said that like supernatural asks the question, what is a monster? Is Sam a monster because he was drinking demon blood? And like doing all these supernatural things, or is Sam a monster because of the choices that he has made? Either way, he's a monster, but. (laughs) I think what the show is trying to get us to think about at the very least, right? Damned if you do or damned if you don't. Poor Sam. (laughs) There's a conversation to be had about Sam and redemption, but that's for season five. Oh, I'll be excited to get there because I feel I'm very open to the concept of a redemption arc for Sam is coming because you need to then walk back all the terrible things he's done, including bringing Lucifer back to eventually get him to a state where we feel like he's our tallest being again. Cause I feel like we will get there again. That's a, that's a pretty tall order. Well, maybe one only our tallest being <laughs> can fulfill. So with our tallest being wrapped up, would you get us started with our Deanus Dean? We need a rhyming name. Our darndest Dean. There we go. So, well, Dean also goes through the ringer in this episode because as much as Sam really only interacts with Ruby and he's isolated from everybody else, like Dean interacts with Bobby, Zechariah, and Cass. And then he has to decide who is ally and who is foe. First, I guess I need to briefly talk about his interaction with Bobby because we've talked about it last episode, like where Dean says like John things and Bobby says dad things and Dean can't really comprehend what's happening because he's never been told loving dad things. One thing that I find really beautiful is that Bobby really persists in this and reminds him of what matters. And I think that this is what is really revealed to Dean in this episode. And then he acts on that as the episode goes along, but he's reminded of like what matters, who matters and what's real in his life. And I think that Bobby just does such a great job at this that Dean is transported to the green room so that he can take action on what Bobby told him. I think that is the beginning of Dean's big revelation in this episode. Like, obviously, I think more of it comes to light when he hears the ultimate plan and realizes that, surprise, you shouldn't have trusted Zachariah, that asshole. Um, I really hate him. Like, he plays a jerk so well. Oh, my God. Like, that's the moment of, like, the realizations. Bobby is just reiterating the truth to him while the angels reveal they've been lying this whole time, essentially. Even then, even like we said last, I think I said a few weeks ago, they never outright lied. They kept stepping around the truth without revealing it. 
You know, at no point did they ever say he'd be the one to kill Lilith. They just made it very clear that Sam couldn't do it and that Dean would have to be safe because he's more important in their plans. When Cass goes, you have to stop it. He never said what he had to stop. So at first we think he has to stop the demon from doing whatever, Azazel from doing whatever. Then we think he has to stop Lilith from breaking the seals. And now we're actually being told that it is, you know, the apocalypse. We know Cass was already a little bit, I don't know, I want to say kind of unsure almost, even then. Did he maybe mean stop Sam and get ahead of this whole end of the world thing? You could read it like that. I don't think it's a popular reading. Anyways, I like the fact that it had its ambiguity and throughout this season we've been able to kind of jump back and forth. Sorry, I want to kind of come back to it because in that exact episode is also when Dean finds out that Sam is drinking demon blood or he's about to find out like literally the next episode. Right. That's the episode where he learns he's ingested it because of Azazel. And then it's at the beginning of the next episode where I jokingly comment how unceremoniously Sam just reveals the demon blood thing. And Dean's like, I didn't say anything about that. You knew? Question mark. Well, because we do get Cass saying your brother is headed down a dangerous path on that one. So, I mean, you could see it that way, too. Yes. But basically, I think my wider point is that, like, you have to stop it could mean literally everything. Yeah. So I agree with what you're saying that, like, the angels never really lied to him. They were just really good at speaking doublespeak. It's so evil, but I love it. Like you said, it's revealed to Dean, like, what exactly he swore to with Cass last episode when he swore to obey. Like, he didn't really know what he was agreeing to, but he agreed. It almost sounds like the deal that Azazel made with their mother, where it was super vague and just, I'll come visit you in so many years and you'll let me in. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. No details. No specifics. Just you promise to this vague thing. That will benefit me in some way you don't understand. That's exactly what they fucking did to him. Sorry, continue. I find this really fascinating because, again, in that moment, like Mary had lost everything, right? And so she agrees. And then in that moment, Dean thinks that he's about to lose Sam. So he agrees. Like mother, like son. Oh, yeah. Oh, more than you think. So basically, Dean finds out that heaven actually wants Lucifer to rise, which is kind of um, a surprise to Dean, and that Dean that he's somehow supposed to like stop him. And 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 Dean's not on board. He's so not on board that he actually makes the call to Sam in that moment, and he makes that call because of Bobby. And I genuinely believe that if the call had gone th- gone through unaltered, and if Sam had been able to hear what Dean told him, actually, I really think that it would have changed the way that things actually happened. Whether it was Zachariah or Ruby who modified that call, do we find out? I don't know. Am I going to assume it's Zachariah because he's still around to get punched in the dick? That's what I'm going to go with. Oh, I am livid with this character. Punched in the dick? That's that's what Zachariah has coming to him, and if he doesn't get it, I'll be mad. Oh my god. Okay. 
But I mean, that's that's what this all is. That we talk about revelations, and that is the revelation that Dean has is his love for his brother and his understanding of being a good person and reaching out to him to be his partner and not, you know, his jailer as he was last week when he tried to detox him. I think the revelation is also like the way that we were showed love was not love. Love is reaching out. Love is, is, is saying it. Love is calling when things get bad. When Dean is like lamenting that Sam never wanted in this family, he left for Stanford. I was like, oh my God, I'm hearing John again. And I just find it so interesting that like both, well, it's not interesting. It's super sad that like both these boys, these men like go back to saying things that their dad would have said because that's the only thing they know. And it takes Bobby to be like, um, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, better dad here. Info. Did you know love can be good and not jerk? Right. Like love can feel good. Love is acceptance. Oh, it's heartbreaking. I sit here and I just I think about this and how like, I mean, it's it's to break story for a split second. It, it's TV writing. It is the. Everything goes right, but a second too late that the bad thing still happens. Like we can go into the next season now knowing that they I don't even think have repaired their relationship, Sam and Dean, but they're on the right path to fixing things and that they will like even just the tag team killing of Ruby, I think, is the greatest illustration of like we are whole again. Like, as much as I defended Ruby for so much of the season. I know. Like, and, I, and, like, I knew. Like, how many times did I say they are making her so empathetic and good that she has to be bad? I'm so sorry that I let you go on and on and on about it. It's, you know what? You're right. How long did I sit here saying this? You, with a straight face, just continued. I mean, that's your job. The fact that I make you do this, the fact that I say these things to you, and you have to sit there and go, fuck, I can't react for three years. Like, I am, I am betting. I am betting I have said something stupid on this show. That is like incredibly crucial to like the finale of season 15 that you're like, how the fuck did he know that? I can't let him know that he's right. And then we're going to get to the finale. I'm going to be like, I was right. I don't know. Chuck was God or the devil or something. It's always really interesting because I never really know what you're going to say. And then sometimes like you are right on the money and sometimes like you're so far off and, <laughs> and like there's no in between, which I find really <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the problem with a show like this is you can't have any like middle answers everything has to be um to quote to quote the McElroy brothers for anyone who listens no middle sliders it's all the way one way or all the way the other there's no middle there's only extremes and this show exemplifies it all right well speaking of extremes do we want to talk about Cass for a second oh and his extremely good decision this week yes let's go I think that for Cass, like the main revelation is that he's willing to risk it all for Dean. Literally. 
Like we've seen him this entire season, like following heaven's orders. We know that, you know, bad things TM uh, have happened to him when he strayed. And we also saw what happened to Anna, who was a fallen angel or is a fallen angel. We're not too sure what's going on there. But now Cass is choosing to fall from grace to help Dean basically get to Sam and maybe foil Heaven's plan. And I think that this decision comes from like the very intense conversation that he has with Dean. A conversation, by the way, that starts with Cass saying, we've been through much together, you and I, and I just wanted to say I'm sorry it ended like this. Cass, I have questions because what exactly ended? What was going on before that can no longer go on now that Dean is under Heaven's control? He's basically arguing that what heaven has planned is better because, I quote, I see nothing but pain here. I see inside you. I see your guilt, your anger, confusion. And then Dean asks him, you know what's real? People. Families. Like he's basically showing Cass that he cares. That he cares about Sam, about the whole world, really. And in this moment, like just a little bit, Dean is changing Cass. And Dean tells him we're done, like with a break in his voice, and it just really sounds like a goodbye. It does, but it sounds like something else. Do you remember a less beloved angel having a conversation with Dean and Dean saying, oh, the world sucks, it's full of guilt and pain and suffering? And then she turns around and says, no, there's good things. I think this is... That moment that Cass sees, and, I, and again, like, I feel like I'm saying something because it's so cliche, because I feel like a million movies and stories and books and video games and media have made this point. But we're putting text on subtext here, even if it's very blunt subtext. No matter how much pain you may feel or how much guilt or suffering can happen, it is always worth moving on because of the people you love and the people who love you. And again, this takes millions of forms over millions of medias. But at the end of the day, this is Dean telling Cass, you're wrong. Ending the world to make this peace on Earth isn't actually peace on Earth if you're killing all these people because these people have lives and they love each other and they have feelings. And yeah, sure, there's bad times, but those bad times are only bad because there are good times. The, the whole thing's a scale. You can't have, you know constant peace that's not how it works it's not the goal and i think this is cass looking at dean and realizing yeah there's more to being this whole having feeling things and i think cass finally understands love sex and chocolate cake does he though like does he understand those things in the in the things i've been reading he does (laughs) Listeners, just so that you're aware, we got Drew into reading fanfiction. Oh, and what and what piece of fanfiction did you start me on? <laughs> well, no, I just told you after you did that lore segment that you should read the first chapter of Four Letter Word. And I told you that I would know when you would read it or if you would read it. Was I right or was I wrong? You were very right, which you <laughs> always are. <laughs> 
Shall we head to critical time? Yes. I'm going to take a weird stab in the dark here and guess that our writer and director maybe was Eric Kripke? Yes, that's correct. So what I find really interesting about this episode is that like a lot of the things that like we have reproached Kripke in the past for his writing of supernatural episodes, like I find that he does a really good job at it in this episode. Like this was really good. And you see Kripke through and through, you know, for better or worse, but honestly, in this case, it was genuinely for better in my opinion. I even said it during our live watch, not like putting together that it was probably him who did this. And again, here I have the confirmation now, but I've always commented that he feels like he's racing to get to a finish line that just he's set up his own finish line and realized that it's further than he wanted to get to here. He set up that finish line and gave himself exactly enough space, like not a moment of this episode feels wasted. Oh, no, 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 not at all. And even though there are a lot of locations, like it doesn't feel like we're just going back and forth and back and forth. Like it, it just, it flows really well. So, you know, let's throw him his flowers when he deserves them. And again, I know I'm only going off four seasons right now. That was the most well done season finale thus far. I I have like a feeling of hope. As opposed to season one that just felt like a we ran out of time. Uh, We'll see you next week. I totally get that. Kudos. Would you have a story to tell us this week? Oh, I do. Hello? Is someone there? Well, if you're hearing me, well, firstly, I'm very sorry for your loss. Whoever he was, he no longer is. I've been stuck down in these tunnels for a while now. Not really sure, but it's been a long time, I think. Sadly, he must have been down here longer than me. And from someplace different, his clothes seem unnatural. I wonder if he's down here for the same reasons I am. Well, when I found this radio, I first thought I could use it to call for help, but... I know I'm too far gone for someone to rescue me. These tunnels go on forever, and I can't seem to make sense of them. Even with access to writing utensils, I don't think I'd be able to map it. It doesn't seem to make sense. It's like the tunnels don't work right. Maybe speaking to you was only to keep my sanity, and suppose you were, well, you knew or um, knew the deceased man from whom I borrowed this radio. You should not be left to wonder if them if he may return. I tried to find out his name, but didn't find any markings on his belongings. Just some items I didn't recognize that seemed otherworldly almost. Some glowing black slate and other peculiar devices. Well, if you're out there and you're hearing this. Please, try and get word to my family. They must be worried sick about me. I was only supposed to be deployed overseas for a few months to fight the German forces. I suspect they're wondering where I am. I haven't written a letter to them in days. Maybe weeks? Oh my gosh, that that was such a surprise. (laughs) I wasn't expecting it. I'm glad it worked. (laughs) It works really well. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh, a little bit of fun writing there and a... Otherwise, very bleak, uh, very upbeat episode. Surprise, I how bleak it was, which makes me excited to know what you have to share with us this week. I feel like I need to praise Eric Kripke. It really was a good episode, like both from how it was written and how it was directed. 
I just like those transitions, the lighting change in the green room when heaven won't help. The green room was a masterpiece in every shot. Like the paintings change also when it went from like beautiful paintings with like warm, gorgeous, like colorful colors to like those really harsh, like depictions of battle and hell, like. But even just the little things like having the door disappear, the statue reconstruct itself, the food randomly appear, uh, just like the transitions that were used to get those effects as a moment, I believe, where the camera's panning uh, around the room. Uh, and I feel like panning is not the right word. And I'm doing that thing where we just, everyone uses panning as the default word when it's not the right word. I digress. Uh, and we get, you know, like cast suddenly appearing. Like it's just, it's all done so beautifully. It really feels like whoever the cinematographer was working with Kripke as the director, they just had a ball shooting that se- those scenes. So I completely agree, Drew. Like Serge Ladouceur did such a wonderful job, like with this episode, and like it's inter- It's it, I just find it so funny how sometimes like these episodes really don't look good, and then other times like they look like this. And I I think it's also important to keep in mind that Supernatural does practical effects really well because they have so little budget, or they had so little budget for like after effects. That, mm-hmm. And you know, you've called it out before that you oh, just yeah, no. absolutely some of the, hated it. <laughs> some of the CG they tried to pull off in the early seasons. I'm thinking of like the I first mean, time it, we see the ooze, like the ectoplasm yeah. of the walls. Oh, God. If I'm honest, it doesn't get much better, right? Those practical effects, genuinely, like that's where you see their craft and how good they are at this and to weaving that story. So anyway, thank you very much, the entire team. Thank you, Eric Kripke. Thank you, all the actors, writers, everybody. This week, we have a message from José. But before we listen to it, we'd like to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. Where do you see revelations in Supernatural? What was revealed to Bobby in this episode? Or to respond to something else we discussed today? You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Hi, Drew and Marie. This is José. I wanted to share my thoughts about the role reversal of Sam as a protector that you talked about in Yellow Fever. My first instinct when you said that was to say no. Sam was so annoyed with Dean's fears. He was not protecting him. He left him alone in the hotel room. How can you protect someone when you're not even there? But That is because I'm so used to see Dean as a protector, and Dean is really physical in the way he protects his brother. He would get close to Sam, touch him, or often grab his jacket. When Sam had migraines, uh, because of his vision in season two, he would he would hold him. Like at some point, he was almost cradling him. Sam is less way physical. And it might be because I'm more like Dean than Sam in that aspect. Way more touchy-feely, if you will. So I did not recognize what Sam was doing as protecting his brother. But you're right. In his own way, more intellectual than physical, he was trying to take care of his big brother. Even if he didn't really know how, because Dean would never let him do that before. So he asked for help, that is good, and he didn't tell Dean what the plan was, 
to spare him the, the anxiety of knowing that the plan was really flimsy. Keeping secret from each other is not great, but that is the Winchester way. So, anyway, uh, I wanted to let you know that I truly enjoy your podcast and I will keep listening as long as you will keep making episodes. So, bye. Jose, thank you for a beautiful message. I, you know what? I got, I love the fact you took us on that journey with you. I feel like it's something we do on the show a lot of like how we get to certain places because it helps build the understanding. And you're right. It, it doesn't feel the same because Dean's version of protecting is much more active than Sam's much more passive protection. The same way John protected them by just leaving them in a hotel room, mind you. Just saying for making the comparisons between Sam and John and some of Sam's Johnisms this season. I mean, as someone like you, I'm very touchy feely. I'm, I'm a very like physical contact person. It, it makes sense that the way you would see a character doing things, actively making these motions to, like you said, pulling his coat or grabbing him or like, you know, like bracing him against something. Like I almost got a picture like. I could see that moment when they're driving and Dean has to slam on the brakes doing like the soccer mom, like arm stop to so Sam wouldn't hit his head on the window. Like that just feels like that is Dean's always kind of actively looking to protect. And Sam, who's only ever been protected. Like he grew up being protected by John more than he has been by Dean. And I don't think sees Dean's protection as protection. He sees it as just like that's how Dean is when he really thinks of dad more as like this, this entity that was there to guard him. I don't think Sam really sees the parentification of Dean that we do. So he doesn't equate the two. So the idea of I need to protect Dean. What did dad do when he went on a hunt? He left us alone in a room and said, don't leave. Oh my God. Am I wrong? No, you're not. <laughs> I mean, I'm just devastated. <laughs> I it, honestly, it was like halfway through this voicemail that it hit me and I just had a real like, oh, Jose is a beautiful voicemail. And thank you again. But like the things I do to Mary, you just did to me. I just I made I, I made the really intelligent but sad thought happen. Jose, honestly, I really loved because even when you first started with this and you were like, I don't think that that's really protecting. And I was like. Okay, well, you know, that's true in a way that's not really protecting him, like leaving him in a room at the same time, like he sort of knew he would be safe. But I, I was totally willing to like listen to that perspective. And like, and, and I think that your voicemail kind of gives us an opportunity to, to see different, to see things differently, especially, and again, like it kind of comes back to my whole vision about fiction and, and like, to try to see something that we are used to seeing our own way in a different way. And it's, it's much more safe to do that when we're talking about fiction and fictional characters and fictional situations than it is to do it in real life where there are stakes. So I, I just wanted to say thank you for taking us on that journey, like, like, Drew, like Drew said, and uh, for the very sad realizations. Thank you very much for that. Well, with those realizations out of the way, shall we reflect a bit more on this episode too? I have a very weird, like, layer removed kind of reflection and call to action this week. And that reflection was just sort of. I really enjoyed our live watch. Like, it was a great episode to do that with. And it just it felt so good to be doing something with people who care 
And it's just, you know what, like, I, I, for those who might know, I've spoken out of it, especially on the Discord or like on some of the post shows. I'm in a new job recently and it's been about a not even two months yet. And like, it's always a scary thing doing something new. And as much as we've been doing the show now for four seasons, doing something new is scary. But it's when you find those people who can connect with you and they raise you up and they treat you so well. So the call to action is just to like seek those people out, remember who they are and sometimes just thank them. Just let them know that what they're doing helps. So for those of you who attend our live shows, for those of you who respond to us on TikTok and Twitter, for those of you who are in the discord and like can just share in all these moments, like thank you for accepting me as a new member of this fandom. Thank you for accepting us as a, a show and as, as fans and as content creators. And thank you for sharing this with us. Mm, I love that. Bit of a big one. Bit of a big one, but for a season finale, it works, I think. I think it works, too. And you, my dear, what would you have to share with us today? This episode really reminded me of the dangers of social isolation. Uh, So I'm going in a completely different direction than you did. (laughs) It reminded me of the very first research project that I ever worked on. And it was about finding ways to break social isolation of men living with chronic pain. And through this project, I learned about like the real health effects of social isolation. So this episode really makes me feel called to do what Dean does and ask for help and not what Sam does, which is to just continue being isolated. So Dean is able to break that isolation and he asks Bobby for help. He asks Zachariah for help and he asks Cass for help. Not everybody will help but some will. And so this is my reminder that I can also ask for help, that not everybody will help, but some will. I love that. And you know what? It, it, you know, I think I can kind of weave our things together it, that it, it goes with. It's if you know who you can ask for help, if you know the people who you can rely on and never to a point that you're going to make it like difficult for them, but that, you know, and I mean, I'll, I'll say it. Uh, you know, if you ask me for help with the right things, you know I'm going to come running because you deserve it and you should be helped. And if I can help, I will. Thank you. And I know the same is true for you when it comes yes, to Yes, of course. Oh, my goodness. Anything I can do. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Guru. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Jose for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Sorry, I now just have an image in my mind of the moment when the brothers return to Bobby. And they're like, (laughs) Bobby, great news. We've gotten back together and we're friends again. That's good news. Wait, is there bad news? Lucifer's here? (laughs) Guess who's coming to dinner?
literally that like uh, old like 70s style like the screen like just like you know like the black it yes, just come exactly. in and just circles on Bobby's face oh boys <laughs> idiots <laughs> <laughs> them idiots 